This is the Politics and More podcast. I'm David Remnick. With everything going on in this country over the last two weeks since the midterms, there was also big news from the United Kingdom this week, extremely big news. On Wednesday night, Theresa May came out of her headquarters at 10 Downing Street in London and announced what Britain has been waiting for for more than two years, a plan for Brexit. This is a decisive step which enables us to move on and finalize the deal in the days ahead. May spoke for two minutes light on detail, and through most of it, you can hear a protester shouting in the background. I know that there will be difficult days ahead. Uh, This is a decision which will come under intense scrutiny, and that is entirely as it should be. Intense scrutiny, it seems, is a British expression that might mean they're going to come for me and they're going to cut my bleeping head off. Then Theresa May went back inside 10 Downing Street, closed the door, and politically speaking, all hell broke loose. Sam Knight has been covering Brexit, and he recently profiled Theresa May for the magazine. We'll be joined in a minute by Rebecca Mead, a longtime staff writer based in London as well. Sam, I don't know how to put this any better, but what just happened? <laughs> um, there is, you know... It's hard to sort of exaggerate the sort of extent of the the ferment and the chaos now. The reason this has been so controversial is that from the get-go, Britain announced that there would be a way to not have a border on the island of Ireland between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, despite the fact that Britain would be leaving the EU. Because the Republic of Ireland is staying in Europe as Britain plans to leave. And at that point, Theresa May set herself the challenge of of how to devise a compromise that could allow that to happen. And the solution that has been arrived at after everyone banging their head against this problem for the last 18 months is that not just Northern Ireland, but the whole of the UK will remain inside the EU's customs union, sort of for, for the foreseeable future, until someone can come up with a better idea to solve this problem. And that idea of Britain remaining inside one of the EU's key pieces of architecture, following lots of rules, being subject to the jurisdiction of the ECJ, which is the EU's highest court, spells and smells to Brexiteers that we haven't really left and we may never leave. And that is what's causing the chaos today. So basically the worst of both worlds, right? They would have or would have had all the economic rules and basically no say at all in the process. Mm. Theresa May's response to that is that we hope that we will never end up in this situation, and once we continue these negotiations in the next unbelievably kind of epic phase of this thing, which is called the transition period in which negotiations will continue, that we will be able to design something so this thing, which is called the backstop, a sort of insurance policy, never has to arise. But once you see it in black and white on, on the text... It's, it's hard to get that out of your head and, and not to feel sort of fatalistic that, that Britain will sink into this situation, which is, you know, on the face of it, an absurd situation for, you know, Europe's second largest economy to be a rule taker inside, you know, crucial aspects of the European Union with, as you say, you know, no, no, no say over them. Do you see any way forward from here? So it was really telling to me that on Wednesday evening when Theresa May stepped out of this extremely long and, and brutal 
cabinet meeting to announce that the cabinet had agreed to support the deal, she said for the first time, the country faces a choice now. It, it faces a choice between my deal, no deal, and no Brexit at all. And, you know, as you'll know, and as we've been speaking about, there is this campaign for a, a people's vote, a second referendum on Brexit, which could, you know, in theory, keep the UK within the European Union. And it, it was just very striking to me. That's the first time that Theresa May has aired the possibility. That's, that's not because she wants it to happen or she thinks that's a good I- idea. She's dead set against it and will do everything to to stop it happening. And I think in a way she she mentioned it to sort of remind Brexiteers and pro-Brexit people to, to get behind her. Otherwise, this thing is in peril. But I, I think even raising that possibility has, if you like, it's emboldened everyone across the political spectrum to think that this thing is up for grabs now. Well, Rebecca, how would you make the case for Brexit? In other words, if you're Boris Johnson at this point, who's still ferociously behind Brexit and and not a watered-down version, what is he still advertising as the sure benefits of it to the people of the United Kingdom? I think the argument um, that the Brexiteers made from the very beginning before the the vote took place was an argument about a, a kind of vague idea of sovereignty and control over our destiny as a nation um, for the for the voters for whom the contemporary world uh, gave them very little sense of having any control that was a very appealing argument um, I mean the the thing that one sort of hears around now from people who are either in favor of Brexit or at this point just think it's going to happen so we might as well deal is you know yes things will be a little rough for a while but it'll all work out fine in the end um those people making that that argument have within their own lives a kind of wiggle room uh, for things to take a downturn. Um, the pity of it is that there are so many people who voted for Brexit who don't have that wiggle room in their own household budget to see food prices go up, for example, as it's anticipated they will, um, or to see an economic downturn and uh, for wages to stagnate. Um, they don't have the luxury of thinking that's no big deal. Rebecca, this summer you moved back to London after having lived in New York for 30 years. You must still be seeing the city through fresh eyes, even if you, even as you and your family look to settle down. Where do you see the evidence of Brexit in practical life, in conversation, in the, in the overall political anxieties of, of the United Kingdom now that you live there? Well, London, where I've been living since the end of August, is a very different place from the rest of the country. Um, London is sort of an island unto itself. Um, it voted overwhelmingly to stay in the European Union. London's stuffed to the gills with Europeans and people from other countries too. It's a very international place. And so when one's here uh, there's almost a feeling of, I mean, how much difference can it really make? I mean, the, there's an absurdity to what's going on here. Um, there's a kind of Alice in Wonderland quality to it where there's a kind of disbelief about what's going on. Sam, you've been traveling actually all over the country and, and getting a sense of how people feel. Is there any shift in their in the position on Brexit and outside of London? What are the anxieties about the future? 
So I, I think something that's that's sort of really easy to lose track of, particularly if you're in London, if you're kind of instinctively uh, think that this is, you know, a terrible idea, it's very easy to to lose sight of a, a fundamental kind of driver behind Brexit, which was a kind of honest, democratic response to a feeling of being governed by remote, alienating forces, be that globalization, be that kind of loosely regulated capitalism, be that the European Union. When you're out and about in the country, there is this kind of strong feeling that Brexit is being handled badly. And what we're seeing now, I think, and in, in a slightly worrying way, is a kind of betrayal myth emerging. You know, Theresa May is not an avowed Brexiteer. She never sort of has expressed strong views either way on whether Brexit is a good thing or a bad thing for the country. So there's this... Which is amazing, yeah. though, isn't it? Isn't it amazing that the prime minister of the country has never expressed a, a, a firm view one way or the other on the most consequential question in contemporary history for the United Kingdom? How is that possible? I think that you know, Theresa May's kind of strength and weakness as a prime minister is that she's she's not particularly charismatic. She doesn't paint a rosy vision of what is possible. She is a selfless and dutiful person. And I I do think that with the presentation of this Brexit deal, she's almost irrelevant. I feel like this deal represents the reality of Brexit. It's a mess. It's a compromise. The The agreements that she's come to will protect the economy. They will make Britain more out of the EU than it was before. But it's an ugly proposition. And so I do think that what's happening now is is truly an argument about the substance of of how this should proceed rather than her personally. Rebecca, just as a point of comparison, you've moved back to London. You've been in New York and the United States for a long time. So you've lived in Trump's America and now you're living in Brexit Britain. And I wonder, how does the feel of it differ or, or, or resemble what's going on in the United States? The political discussion, the, the nature of the anxieties and resentments, the, the working, white working class issue, for example. Well, I mean, I think the difference in atmosphere, um, I've said this before, but I'll, but I'll say it here. I think the difference in atmosphere between Britain and the United States is the difference between depression and psychosis. I mean, I think that there's a... (laughs) Great. I think that, you know, my feeling certainly in Trump's America was one of mounting panic every morning when I looked at the news to see what latest, you know, depredation had happened. Um, Here, it's sort of like, oh, God, um, yet another dreary... um, Brexit negotiation step to to try to assimilate and get through. I mean, it, the thing about Brexit is it's incredibly complicated, incredibly important, and unbelievably dull. And you know, one can never say that about Trump's America. Um, I have to say, it sounds like a giant bollocks. I, it, it, I mean, no it, one it, says it, giant. Conf- no one says giant bollocks, but it is a right. giant. I know, I know that that's a, <laughs> a, 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 a cock up. We would say yeah, a big cock, cock up. up. Yeah. There you yes. go. <laughs> so everybody's miserable. Nobody's happy. Sam, you just wrote recently about the UK's National Health Service, which is a yeah. a pillar of British life. 
NHS has fallen on hard times pretty recently, and Brexit is not making things easier. What kind of threat does Brexit pose to these kinds of government institutions, these social welfare institutions, which are so important to daily life in Britain? Yeah, so I mean, the first one, which is obvious, is that there is a substantial minority, I think it's about 10 to 15% of the workforce of the NHS, is made up of EU citizens who come here and deliver people's babies and give their drugs and give them their, you know, their health exams. There's a kind of question mark over their, their rights and whether they'll want to stay. You know, I think the number of EU midwives coming to the UK has fallen like something like 85% in the last year, you know, so there'll be a real felt effect in staff shortages across the NHS. And then there is, you know, the larger question of how we of how we pay for these things. I mean, the NHS is is a strange one because it's so totemic. The, the government's focused an enormous amount of kind of energy and funding on trying to keep it going while actually lesser seen aspects of, of the welfare state are sort of withering on the vine a bit at the moment. So if I live in Middle England, which is part of the heart of the pro-Brexit vote, how am I going to be satisfied by Brexit? How is my life going to be better or am I bound to be disappointed? I mean, Brexit is one of these sort of awful things posited as a solution. You know, it's, it just can't be the solution. I, I sometimes kind of sort of grapple around for sort of analogies that sound a bit like this. But imagine if for one reason or another, you know, the American people were offered a referendum on whether or not to return to the gold standard, right? And you had a kind of huge national campaign in, in which people sort of put forward essentially a kind of nostalgic version of life when, you know, men mm -hmm. were men and a dollar was a dollar and, you know, a pound of apples in the shops was a pound of apples in the shops. Do you know what I mean? And then <laughs> and, and the country voted, actually, you know, the, the turning to the gold standard would actually make life more reasonable and more real and more kind of approachable and people would look each other in the eye again, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. That's what we've done. We've done this arcane policy idea of, as Rebecca said earlier, you know, a few group of people basically obsessed with British sovereignty as if that will solve things like more fulfilling, better skilled jobs for, you know, the white working classes of the Midlands, which it just is not able to deliver. You know, that's, that's a very negative account of what Brexit is, and I, and I sometimes kind of try and draw back from that and say, look, the EU is a very, very complicated political project. And I sort of have to hold on to this idea that people who voted for Brexit, they didn't do it from nowhere. You know, they did do it because there is something alarming about a group of, you know, and this is the, you know, the Brexit rhetoric, unelected EU commissioners in charge of trillion dollar budgets in Brussels, making rules about, you know, British milk, you know, that, that can be a kind of an alienating way in which to take part in democratic life. So th this is the sort of the yin and the yang in my head all the time about Brexit is that it will not improve people's living standards. But were they wrong to, to send a message that they're not being listened to? I, that's the, that's the, the two sides of it. But as with the Trump vote, yes, there was a genuine cry of pain from the white working class voter on both sides of the Atlantic. But there was also racism and ignorance and a kind of anti-elitism uh, and all these other factors that, that played in. The decision may end up having these profound economic consequences for many years to come. 
a lot of people thought that what they were voting on was immigration, yeah. right? And a sense of wanting to close up Britain's borders, which was a sort of an uglier part of the conversation. And that too is something that we're going to have to continue to reckon with. What an astonishing mess. Rebecca and, and Sam, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Rebecca Mead and Sam Knight, both staff writers based in the UK, which is still part of Europe, for now.